When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 105, and we're recording on Friday, May 8th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Good morning. Happy Friday. You too. Are you caffeinated? Uh, Yeah, I mean, are you ever really caffeinated (laughs) enough? Well, I'm not. Oh, you're but, not caffeinated? No, I am caffeinated, oh. just never enough. There's just no. never enough. The trick is to stay, to keep on your uppers long enough to you can start your downers at about five o'clock. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah, I commend you if you're making it till five on this Friday. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a been nice a week, Friday man. here, and uh, it's a nice, it, it's finally nice here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, now it's summer, it's 84 degrees. I, don't, yeah, I, I guess we have two seasons now. We had like two weeks of nice in Richmond and it's been basically 90 the last couple mm-hmm. of days. And I'm yeah. just trying not to think about it. Yeah, let's not think about it. Let's think about happier things like how we've got some news about Book Riot Live to talk about real quick. We do, we do. We have our first programming announced. Yeah, um, so if so you go to Book Riot... BookRightLive.com slash schedule, you can see, or BookRightLive.com, you can find out all about the event. So it's our two-day event. If for those of you who have forgotten or haven't paid attention, our two-day event in November that's coming up, uh, you know, it's a, it's it's six months away, but it feels to us like it's coming up. But um, we've had some speakers arranged already, but now we're starting to put them into to, to uh, you know, units. Um, so we've got one about turning awareness into action, about think pieces and statistics, and then what do you do when you see stuff about books and reading online that makes you upset or angry or nervous, um, what you can do. Uh, uh, a, uh, a panel called Farm to Table, which I think will be really interesting, called How a Book Gets Made. We have an editor and a designer um, and printers and just sort of walking through like the how it's made process of getting a book from manuscript to agent to editor to design to, to the bookshelf in front of you. Um, and then Lo-Fi and DYI, you, you go to your bookstore, you've got your pull list, you got your holds at the library, but where else can you find interesting stuff to read? So th- these are just a taste of what we're going to get. We've got, we've got one about fandom. We've got some YouTubers and Tumblr people. So these are just sort of, this is, a, this is an amuse-bouche for the programming that you're going to find at Book Riot Live. So we thought you might be interested in seeing some, uh, some names there. Um, all right. So that's follow-up number one. Uh, follow-up number two yeah. is like one of the favorite, my favorite things that I've learned on the internet recently. And um, it's just a quick piece. We mentioned on the uh, Moms, Dads, and Grads recommendation show last week, someone was asking for what books to read if you like music by Florence yes. and the Machine. And one of the commenters, and I'm sorry that I didn't grab the person's name. So if you're listening, I saw you and I appreciate you. Um, let us know that Florence of Florence and the Machine is a big reader and she like frequently recommends books online. And there's there's a Twitter account, which is at between two books, the word two, T-W-O, where um, some folks who are fans of Florence and the Machine run basically a Twitter book club where they read and discuss books that Florence has mm. recommended. Cool. So you can find that at between two books on Twitter. Very cool. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I wonder if she'd, she could get her on Reading Lives. That'd be interesting. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. Anyway, I'm thinking selfishly about how this <laughs> new unit of information is good for me and things that I do. So, you know, just another day. Just another day here being a white guy in the world. <laughs> <laughs> you want to hear about our first sponsor? Yeah, let's, see, let's hear about first sponsor. Uh, we have Invincible by Amy Reed back this week. This is a young adult novel that is not the typical sicklet book. Sicklet uh, is a relatively new term, but the idea has been around since definitely when I was reading kids books. Lurleen McDaniel was the specialty back then. I think it probably existed before, uh, before my reading time as well. But this is a book about uh, a girl named Evie who survives a terminal cancer diagnosis only then afterwards. Um, to spiral into a self-destructive addiction. She's not able to fit back into the life that she had now that she's no longer the cancer kid. And she struggles with this new second chance at life with figuring out who she wants to be, what she wants to become, and who she loves. Then she meets a boy named Marcus. And for the first time in as long as she can remember... Marcus is someone who doesn't know that she had cancer and so doesn't know that she's supposed to be dead by now, um, gives her that feeling of a fresh start. But Marcus is trouble. Uh, he makes her feel alive, but he is trouble. And the life that now she's fought so hard to keep is going to come maybe crashing down around her. Um, Amy Reed is known in the world of YA for writing thoughtful literary fiction about flawed and complex teens that are struggling with real issues with, with drug or alcohol addiction or mental illness. Um, she's open about the fact that a lot of her work is autobiographical and that she draws on her own teen struggles. And so in Invincible, um, she's doing that with the story of a, a kid who's been terminally ill. Uh, Invincible is not focused on a sweet, heroic kid, you know, facing their illness with courage and charm and pluck. Uh, it's not even about having and struggling with the illness. It's about what happens after someone survives and what happens after the supposed happy ending. So we'll have a link in the show notes if you want to check out Invincible by Amy Reed. It's available wherever books are sold. Um, let's do a little word stuff. Real quick. Okay. okay. So Station Eleven by Emily Mandel. Is it Mandel? Mandel? Do you Mandel. Know? Mandel. Emily St. John Mandel. Okay. Uh, won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, which goes to the best, uh, it's the most prestigious award for science fiction in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, she won it. She did. I don't know what else to say. I uh, think that's, it's great. That's good, yeah. It was a solid list. The shortlist this year, list, um, yes. The Girl with All the Gifts by M.R. Carey, The Book of Strange New Things by uh, Michelle Faber, which is one of my favorite books of last year, Europe in Autumn by Dave Hutchinson, uh, Memory of Water by Emmy Itaranta, The First 15 Lives of Harry August by Claire North, and then Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. It was also the, I mean, we've sort of been following Station Eleven both because uh, we like it, but also it won the Book Riot Reader's Pool of our fav- their reader's yes. favorite book of 2014. Mm -hmm. So I know people are interested in news. Like we've been followed sort of all along the way. Um, so that's that's a big deal. The, Clark, the Arthur C. Clarke Award is, is a big deal. Uh, it's a huge deal. And it's interesting for her. Um, she's traditionally written literary fiction with kind of a noir crime twist. Station Eleven was a real departure yeah. for her. And she's talked about, is it science fiction? Is it speculative fiction? I don't even know what this book is, but you can classify it as so many things. And so it's got to be uh, really interesting and exciting for her to be outstanding in this field that she uh, didn't necessarily set right. out to conquer. In sci-fi, I think the big three are sort of the Hugo, the Nebula, and the Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, the the Clark, I think, is a more traditionally juried 
prize. I'm not yes. really sure. And the Hugo, well, if you listen to the show, you know it's, it's, a it's a mess. It's a mess right now. But I don't know anything about the Nebula Award. So I have to say the Nebula Award is the coolest name of those three things. It is. And somebody, one of our contributors did a post a few years ago about the actual statues Yes, Rachel Cordasco did. I remember because right. I was like, when someone you, do this. I want to see you, what these look right, like. Right. When you get book awards. And I could be remembering, I could be misremembering as they say, but I'm pretty sure the Nebula is like the physical object of the Nebula Award is pretty cool yeah. too. Um, a lot of them pretty ugly, got to say. Yeah. You know, it's not something you'd buy sort of at Bed Bath the, just as a tchotchke. But the one for um, the Edgar Allan Poe prize or what, one of the prizes associated with Poe is pretty great. Like it's a yes. little statue of him. Yeah. That, and the Pulitzer, I remember, or the, there was one that said the Pat Pulitzer, the National Book Award, it's like, it's like text on a like piece of glass. It's like, right. congrats, man. <laughs> That's it. Um, Salesman of the year. So, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Uh, so other... I, oh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go for the, you, go, you go. You do it. We're both so excited this morning. I know. Uh, other award news, the Shirley Jackson Awards nominees came out this morning, I think. And one of our contributors just shared that information in recognition of Shirley Jackson's writing. Um, the Shirley Jackson Awards were established for outstanding achievement in the literature of psychological suspense, horror, and the dark fantastic, um, which is the little known sequel to Trip the Light Fantastic. <laughs> um, and the nominees this year also a really good Very list. Um, Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer, another big reader favorite. Bird Box by Josh Mailerman, which was a, a Book Riot favorite as well. And Creepy uh, Broken Monsters by Lauren Bucus, Confessions by Kane Minato. The Lesser Dead by Christopher Buellman and The Unquiet House by Allison Littlewood. Um, I've read Annihilation, Bird Box, and Broken Monsters. I've not read the other three. I have no guesses how this is going to yeah, go. I, other, uh, my yeah, guessing at awards is historically very, very poor. Um, <laughs> I like this award because it's like, we like Shirley Jackson. Let's make up a category that is basically means stuff like Shirley Jackson. Right. Or like, what would Shirley Jackson read? Let's yeah. award that thing. Because Arthur C. Clarke is definitely sci-fi, but mm -hmm. it's not like you're trying to do sci-fi plus the kind of sci-fi Arthur C. Yeah. And this C. is, Clark you could almost write. broaden this to like, this is weird books, like Annihilation, yeah. I don't know if I would call like it scary, psychological though. suspense. Like yeah, and, and it's super weird. You don't really know where it's in media. But it's not rest. straight horror. Is not okay. Right. Basically, yeah, it's yeah. weird. Yeah, and it's Shirley Jackson like, stuff. It's like yeah, stuff like it's the like lottery. in media rest to the tenth degree, where yeah. you're like, "Where am I? What's happening? Who are these things?" It's very unsettling. Broken Monsters is is like an interesting mix of kind mm -hmm. of straight up horror slash police procedural slash like true detective in text form. And it does sort of, I mean, I've sort of made this point hither and yon over the last couple of years, but it feels like this is kind of where we are with, with, mm -hmm. I don't even want to call it literary fiction, but like just fiction in general, like a little bit of a bunch of stuff kind of not, not genre list, but also not without genre, I guess it makes yeah. sense. It's weird. I have um, a theory about that. Do you? I do. Would, Would you, you like, like to, to share it now? <laughs> yes, now that I'm realizing I have a theory yeah. about it. So I know we've both read the Stephen Johnson, Where Good Ideas Come yes. From book that's all about, you know, 
people who are working on like cancer stuff bump up against people who are working on research in a totally right a total like two seemingly disparate fields but when they start talking to each other their ideas cross pollinate and i think the internet is doing that to books that Mm. we're exposed to all kinds of stuff that's not just straight literary fiction readers and book reviewers and writers are you know getting more opportunities to bump up against people who are interested in reading and writing things that are not the same things that they're reading and writing and I think the ideas are cross-pollinating and so then we're getting like Colson Whitehead writing a zombie novel and Emily St. John Mandel writing science fiction and Alexander you know, Heyman writing a zombie based yeah. thing yeah it could be that I mean it could be the other thing is just the stigma of genre has weakened over the yeah. last couple mm-hmm. decades so people feel more I guess autonomy or uh, authority just to sort of throw genre stuff into, you know, something that's not necessarily a genre novel. And I do wonder, like, I wonder if some of the Hugo, you know, I think a lot of it is a, there's a racial gender politics thing. And Mm -hmm. I think that's most of it, but I think some of it too might be genre itself kind of being eroded by the use of genre, different genre pieces and a lot of different genres and sort of non-genre pieces as well. Like yeah. the, the, the castles are crumbling and the moats are draining a little bit between the kinds of books uh, when, we read. And publishing being what publishing is, all that it really takes is one big success in whatever yeah. the new thing is before publishing starts experimenting with trying to recreate that same success. So like Zone one was not the first, you know, literary zombie novel. But if we pretend that it was, that 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 was the thing that gave evidence that you could do literary genre crossover. I think it's more like you got Harry Potter, you've got Mm. Hunger Games, you've got Divergent, you've got Fifty Shades of Grey. Those are all genre franchises. Mm -hmm. Like, and people are just they're publishing is getting better at not pretending so hard that genres not always been the thing that has driven sales and keeping publishing alive because it's has so it always has been. been has it always been i don't know the answer to that i know it has been like ya especially recently in romance mm, and mm-hmm. but it has in like the 70s i just don't know, yeah, I don't I, know. I could okay be, so for the last right. couple decades yeah i think it's least. just like we have these yeah. these things sell and they sell in enormous like mind-boggling mm-hmm. numbers uh and it could be sort of a chicken and the egg situation where they got popular because people read them and then read them and people were more used to more fantastical elements or different kinds of stories. Um, so I don't know. I don't theories, know. Theories. We got theories, but you know, there's something happening. There's something in the water and we, you know, we don't have a great litmus test for it, but there's something out there. Speaking you know, what's not interesting. I'm sorry. I, 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 Are we I, stepping on each other's attempted segues? Yeah, I think things? so. You Would you first. like to go, ladies you go. first? You Are go. you sure? No. Well, I was going to say, speaking of books being more diverse. Okay, oh, go. That's better. That's better than mine. I'll, <laughs> game recognize game. Thank you, sir. Uh, we've talked about book, uh, not not book riot. We are book riot. We've talked about, <laughs> <laughs> I got all confused. Yeah. I'm flustered now. Uh, we've talked about First Books Initiative that they launched last year around We Need Diverse Books to bring more diverse children's books to market. And now they have the first sort of numbers-based move in that was announced this week that they've partnered with Target, KPMG, and JetBlue Airways to make 60,000 copies of children's books that feature diverse voices and experiences available for the first time ever in the trade paperback format. That's 
custom copies each of six outstanding titles that showcase characters and storylines that are often underrepresented in the world of children's literature. Um, First Book chose these titles from hundreds that were submitted by publishers and with input from 175,000 educators and program leaders that First Book serves. So the titles are Nino Wrestles the World, written and illustrated by Yuyi Morales, and Tango Makes Three, written by Justin Richardson and Peter Parnell, and illustrated by Henry Cole. That's the picture book that follows two male penguins in the Central Park Zoo through their efforts to hatch a rock and is frequently banned for being a story supposedly about gay penguins. So that's an interesting and bold selection on the the part of uh, first book. And I'm happy to see it there. Tiger in My Soup by Kashmira Sheth and illustrated by Jeffrey Ebeler. Boats for Papa written and illustrated by Jessica Bagley. Uh, Emmanuel's Dream written by, oh, a debut picture book author, Mm. Lori Ann Thompson and illustrated by Sean Qualls, and Knock Knock, My Dad's Dream for Me, written by Daniel Beatty and illustrated by Brian Collier. Um, so there's you know tons of information in this link that we'll have in the show notes about how these books are bring, being brought to market in trade paperback. All of them have just been either hardcovers or they have not been published before. And um, you, know, you can dive into all of that if you have questions. First book is also Book Riot's charitable partner mm-hmm. this year. So um, if you're supporting us, then you're also supporting them because we're donating 2% of our revenue to First Book this year as voted on by uh, by our readers. So there's a full disclosure and a, hey, we really like this thing. Yes. Um, that's a great program. And I like how they're hitting like several outlets and mm-hmm. you know a lot of different channels and things of that nature. Speaking of things that aren't diverse... <laughs> I see. I was waiting the whole time. I was kind of come up with something that would. Uh, we sort of accidentally gave each other good. Yeah, segues. good segues. Uh, President Obama uh, spoke to students at um, uh, the Washington Library. Is that a thing? I don't. Just the Washington Library. I don't it know. says um, the Anacostia Library in oh, Southeast okay. DC. Okay, thank you. Um, and so I guess he was either asked or offered unprovoked to list some of his favorite books. And I, mm-hmm. I saw the link and I'm like, oh, this should be interesting. Yeah. And it is, is not interesting, really. I mean, it is not. Right? It's, like, it's not interesting. Do we know how old these students were? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a video and there's a kid that looks like he's maybe fifth or sixth grade okay. sort of next to him. So, I'm, you know, maybe, okay. maybe, maybe, uh, you know, the Black Atlantic or something right. wasn't appropriate or something <laughs> like that. But so here's what he said. He said, Dr. Seuss... The Hardy mm-hmm. Boys, mm-hmm. Great Gatsby, The Hobbit, Harry yep. Potter, Treasure Island, and of Mice and Men. Oh man, this is a snooze of a list. It's it's it's. I mean, whatever. Like, I guess you know, I don't want to <laughs> judge his reading necessarily. I guess it just felt like an opportunity to do something more interesting than than this, which is, I, I don't know. I mean, I know if you're caught off guard, like, and it and someone's like, "Oh, what's your favorite book?" Or, it's super. Or, every reader knows that's is. a hard question. It's yes. super hard if you're caught off guard, or they ask, "What are your favorite books?" and you're just playing the game of what comes to mind. Yes. In the moment, that can be really difficult. Like, I can't even remember what I read three weeks ago if no, I don't look no at shot. my spreadsheet. Yeah. So I feel for the president being put on the spot like that. I guess I was surprised because he's mentioned like Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou and great writers of color being 
you know, very crucial to his his reading life and his identity in the past. And he's, you know, quoted and referred to them. And so it was a bummer that this is an all white list. Well, I just remember like he's given Nash, the National Merit of the Arts mm-hmm. that have gone to writers like the last four years, I think have all been people of color. I know mm-hmm. uh, Isabel Allende was on there. Ernest J. Gaines, uh, Rita Dove. Uh, th- I mean, those are just the ones yeah. that come to mind. I mean, maybe if you're sitting there with a group of 10-year-olds, though, and you're like, oh, crap, now I have to think of books that I liked that I can also recommend to 10-year-olds. Like The Great Gatsby? No, that's true. Or Of Mice and Men? Like, how about stuff with murder at the end? Mm-hmm. I don't know. He's working from the same pool of available books that all the rest of us are, though, and we know how lacking in yeah, diversity no, the general pool of books is so that's yeah i don't want to i'm not i don't want to judge it's just kind of like a bummer yeah it's just like too bad because I, I sort of feel like there's a more interesting answer in him i guess that's what it is more than anything else you know what would be great is the do-over well that oh. and a barack obama take on the um what is it the the new york times does the by the books yeah. column where interest like where writer it's usually writers that are touring for their book and they so they like take it as a publicity opportunity to answer some questions about their reading life but mm-hmm. i would love for him to do that cuz they ask like what's on your nightstand do you have any guilty pleasures is there a right. book that, like, that you wish you'd never read and uh, you know the writers find really interesting ways to sometimes dodge answering that question cuz uh, that reminds and I didn't put it in the show, but um, he, that for National Bookstore Day, like the Obamas went to, I can't remember what their store they go to in D.C., maybe it's Politics and Prose, mm. and they like released a full list of what they yeah. bought, and they bought like 17 books, and like Brown Girl Dreaming was on there, like I think Citizen by Claudia Rankin was on there, like, so I mean, it's not, there's there's interesting stuff, and maybe this was the, you know, he's a politician, and the, the preeminent one, and a very, mm. very successful mm-hmm. one, so I'm not going to tell him how to do his politician business. Sometimes when you're not sure what to say, you default to safe. And maybe yep. maybe that's what that was. Yeah, like, given some time to think about the answers and write a thing, yeah. I, I'm like pretty positive that the list would be more diverse and a lot more interesting. Yeah, maybe if it was a, a college or, uh, you mm-hmm. know, a grad school or a community college or some other uh, setting, uh, you know, adult literacy program where it's not fifth and sixth graders. Because that's, that's – it's actually – I was thinking about this too. It's like kind of a rough – uh, it's kind of a rough age, right? Yeah. Because like they're not really ready for adult books. I mean, I wouldn't recommend to a fifth grader really most adult books, you True. know. And but it's also they're not really. And young adult wasn't a thing. Yeah, like it wasn't, wasn't a thing, a thing when thing. we were kids, and so it really wasn't a thing when Obama was a kid. Yeah, There's, he doesn't have like a large. But do you pool recommend? I mean, them. how old are you in fifth grade? You're like ten. You're, 10? You're not. I mean, are you ready for like? Uh, the Fall in Our Stars? I just don't yeah, know. I don't know. But like, so from his list, like you could do Harry Potter at that age. Yeah. You could do The Hobbit at that age. Treasure Island, I think, is pretty safe for 10-year-olds. Yeah. Maybe not so much of Mice and Men. Yeah, or Gatsby. It's like murder-suicide. Yeah. It's a lot of drinking. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's just weird all of a sudden to think about. I mean, it's safe because it's The Great Gatsby and no one really thinks about it. Like, no oh, yeah, gonna, The Great Gatsby. Right. No one's going to argue with you about the greatness of the Gatsby. Anyway, so some of it is, I think, I think that's kind of a tough age. You know, I know middle grade fiction is a thing and there's a lot of great books, but he may not. And just the on the spotness. Yeah. Yeah. That's rough. That's a hard, it's just a hard position to be put in. So I I think, I think we're both going the same thing. It's like, aw, but I get it. But we get it. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's see. Where, where are we here? Uh, so we jumped around. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is, I just gotta. Yeah. Okay. We just gotta. 
So United Airlines started an in-flight magazine with literary aspirations. It's called Rhapsody. And they've gotten great literary writers to do pieces in it, like Anthony Doerr, who wrote All the Light We Cannot See, yes. that's won all of the awards. And sold all the books. Right. Joyce Carol Oates. Um, Emily St. John Mandel wrote a thing. Rick Moody. The late Elmore Leonard, there's a, a, an unpublished story of his in it. Here, So this is great, right? An airline, when you're stuck, you have a captive audience, is doing interesting content about books. Here is the kicker. It's only available in first class. I don't, I just, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Like, what? Just. <sighs> so, okay. I guess I guess what they're trying to do is make first class feel like a more premium experience, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so, and I saw a picture. It's like this black matte or a glossy cover. Like, it looks like cigar aficionado, basically. It does, and it has, um, this cover has Michael K. Williams from, yeah. uh, from The Wire. And so, I guess even if they don't think the people are going to read it, maybe the idea is I feel more special and mm, rarefied because I don't get, you know, the the six best burgers to eat in Cleveland like is in the regular, <laughs> you know, cause, which I read those. Yeah, I enjoy right. those. I, I do too. I'm like, oh, I'm going to I'll be in Cleveland but, someday. I'll fantasize about these maybe burgers. Maybe if you're getting, you feel like you're getting top shelf like literary fiction, that it's a different kind of experience. And like... But it is super weird, though, that I don't know what this represents oh exactly. God. Like, it represents something, how we think about fiction, but I can't really articulate yeah. what it is exactly. I think you're right that this was probably a boardroom full of United Airlines marketing Not people even, who were if like... even a boardroom. I mean, maybe. Right, it, who were yeah. like, right. It's like, you know, some marketing people sat around and were like, oh, we'll fancy up the in-flight magazine for first class. Like... You know, we can probably pay writers not a whole lot. I was going to say it's know. probably deceptively cheap as yeah, well to we'll, get like. We'll pay some literary them. writers because literary writers always need, you know, more writing and money. And we'll do this, you know, fancy thing so that first class f- just feels more literary. And then you can sit in first class and drink your free cocktail and think of yourself as someone who's like, you know, who's made it, you've made it, you're sitting in first class, right. and you're drinking your free drink. And you're not reading about the eight best burgers in Cleveland, you're reading about, you know, great literature, mm-hmm. Joyce Carol Oates's latest whatever. But I I feel like there's some implicit stuff here that is like one of those unconscious cognitive bias things that's worth unpacking, which is this notion that like, wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't the people in coach be just as interested in books? Do we really think that people in first class are more interested in books than anybody else? Because, yeah, if you're flying at all, it's a class signifier, and right? Like the the joke I made on Twitter is they're putting the literary magazine in first class where no one who works in anything yeah, related well, to publishing can afford point, to yeah. sit. Like, Yeah, it's 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 an odd it's an odd deployment uh, of it, you know, like. I don't know. I mean, maybe it doesn't matter so much to, I mean, does it really, does it say, does it say something about literary fiction or does it say something about how we think about this or how most people think? Because this is like, this is sort of a broadcast move. Like it's not specific to book nerds or something like this. This Mm -hmm. is everyone who buys, uh, you know, a first class ticket is going to get this. So 
I don't know. I don't and really understand I don't so much I, about I, it. I also feel like maybe it's just not paying much attention. Like I travel a lot and I always see people reading in both cabins. Yeah. But, you know, it's a thing that I look for when I'm sitting back in coach because that's where I'm sitting. Well, looking at what people are reading and how many people are reading. And well, I just think like I think the thing you got to think about with first class is you got to think about that little tiny curtain they pull across. Like that's right. how I always feel about what they're trying to do in first class. They're just trying to re re reify that the feeling of there's you're a special. little curtain and you're right. special. And it's, to some degree, I think there's they're right about not most people don't read literary fiction. That's just mm-hmm. true. So mm-hmm. maybe you're sort of piggybacking two things on top. Like most people don't. You want to be in a minority. Here's a way of putting those things yeah, together. Yeah, reifies that elite status of the literary. Yeah, I over, get it. You don't. And right, here's, over the, the other here's my mimosa to prove it. Yeah. Um, the, this piece in The Guardian notes that the authors provide um, United with copy and, you know, sort of lend their names and their prestige. And then they get paid, you know, some sort of fee or maybe they get free travel and accommodations. And The Guardian says it's a very modern form of patronage. As always mm. with patronage, though, there are limits on the writer's freedom. Like apparently it's stay literary, but positive is um, one uh, of the rules or one of the unstated rules, at least for this United. Probably thing. not a like, lot of stories about like corporate greed or malfeasance, you know, right. Or like, right, like uh, Mandel Rhapsody wrote a piece apparently about um, the problem of choosing a book for a flight. And Karen Russell wrote a piece about her first flight. Uh, someone wrote about a trip they took to Disney World so when they were like a kid. it's kind of like advertising. Yeah, and that stuff is preferred to short stories entitled, like, the joke here would be um, Sudden Plummet, or What Am I Doing in a Metal Tube at 8,000 Feet? <laughs> the Man in the Gray Flannel Suit uh, right. excerpt from... Uh, it's, this is, like, it's interesting. If you're the writer, though, and you're like, okay, well, you have a, an air, you have a flight with, what, two or 300 people on it, but only 15 of them are going to see my thing, like... If you're not getting dollar, paid, dollar, dollar bills, y'all. I guess it would depend on how much you're getting paid, but mm. that like name recognition and exposure stuff matters too. Well, think of how think many people buy is... first class versus how many people buy a hardback of a novel. Like probably the numbers are not that different, honestly. Yeah, interesting. I mean, there are tens of thousands of flights like, a day. I mean, I know it's just one airline. Right, but that's true. There's there's a lot there. I mean, And like tangentially, I think very few first class tickets are actually purchased as first class tickets. Most of them are given as upgrades to well, frequent that flyers. I don't know that statistic. Yeah, no, I, I, really read a thing about that. I read a thing about it last year that like very few first class seats are actually sold to people who want to, who intentionally, you know, want to fly first class and will pay the like five mm. times the coach price to sit in first so class. So maybe most you get them, bumped up or you cash yeah, in some Yeah, most of them go to people that get bumped up or like lately when I've been traveling, when I check in for a thing, it's like you can upgrade to business class for, or to the, you know, you can upgrade to like the expanded leg room, which I don't need because I'm five feet tall mm. um, for 25 bucks or you can upgrade to first class for depending on how limited it is on those flights like $99 or $150 so like it is people are paying eventually to end up in those seats sometimes but they're not paying like $800 up front for their first class ticket um, maybe the which logic makes this to, even more interesting it's tangled maybe the logic too is like those are good writers and they mm-hmm. I no no besmirchment to whoever writes for um, Skyways magazine you know the regular one but maybe it's just an idea that it's pre, it's going to be better content than what maybe. you get back like, in the I've back. I've noticed a but lot But why not of, give it to every... I mean, I don't well, know. 
I don't know. Like, and I've looked, I've noticed a lot of names of writers that I recognize in like the United Airlines magazine yeah. or the American yeah. magazine because I flip through those when I'm flying. And a lot of, and this is the thing we don't talk about much in publishing, but a lot of these people that make their careers as literary writers mm-hmm. are not just getting their paychecks from the literary books that they write. They're doing stuff like travel pieces or the essays. Six best, the six best donuts in the Midwest. We should write. Right. We could get dollars from like. Or, um, U.S. Air to write about donuts from Minneapolis like a, to the Baton Rouge. <laughs> Will someone please fund that yeah. for us? Um, Hanya Yanagahara, who wrote The People in the Trees and her book A Little Life is going to be one of the biggest books of this year, um, is a Condé Nast travel writer. No. Um, by, like, that is her primary job, or it has been. Uh, the, there's it, big money in that because the advertising mm-hmm. dollars are huge. Yeah, there's a lot of writers are doing this stuff on the side. So that's, that piece of it isn't new, but it's interesting that they're packaging mm. Some of them up into a more elite feeling thing. Man, I had a lot more thoughts about yeah, that. Yeah, apparently the the uh, front pockets, of the first class is uh, ripe for for thinking. Can uh, we another <laughs> sponsor? Where are we? Are we ready for script? Should we do? I know uh, we've got novice. Oh, novice. So we'll do script in a minute. Okay. Tell novice me about is novice. Um, book one in the Summoner trilogy by Taran Matharu, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, this is about a boy named Fletcher who works as a blacksmith's apprentice when he discovers that he has the rare ability to summon demons from another world. Uh, he's chased from his village for a crime that he didn't commit and so he must travel with his demon who is named Ignatius which I think is excellent uh, to an academy for adepts and that's where the gifted are taught the art of summoning so Fletcher is at this academy along with nobles and commoners and he has to endure these grueling lessons that will prepare him to serve as a battle mage in the empire's war against the savage orcs But sinister forces infect his new friendships and the rivalries increase. And with nobody but his demon Ignatius by his side, Fletcher must decide where his loyalties lie. Uh, Taran Matharu wrote his first book when he was nine years old. And then at 22, he began writing and posting The Novice on Wattpad, which is an online writing community website. And he reached over three million reads of The Novice there in less than six months, which Mm. is a a big number. That's a huge number. And then... uh, novice and his summoner trilogy were picked up by one of the imprints of Hachette uh, children's books. So this is the first of the three books in the summoner series. It's now had 6.2 million reads on Wattpad since the fall of 2014. And uh, this is that the first printed edition. Wow. So summoner by Taryn Matharu. Wattpad is super interesting. Um, It is. And this is, I think the first time that I've heard of like a, a big six, you know, yeah. a success coming out of it and getting a big book deal. Big book I, I'm deal. that's it. Might not be the first one. It's just the first one that I that I remember hearing of. So, if that sounds good to you, demons and battle mages and summoning, uh, summoning demons and fighting the empire. Yeah, uh, you can get the link to Novice by Taryn Matharu in our show notes, or look for that wherever you buy books. Wherever you buy books. Uh, speaking of lots of reads. We've got like potpourri left here, which is fun. Um, mm-hmm. This is a follow-up from a story we did a million years ago, but actually like six months, about Iceland's annual book flood. Basically around Christmas time, it's the tradition in Iceland for basically publishing to release most of the books mm-hmm. onto the market at once. And Icelanders, I guess, are great readers and great book buyers and big book fans. Um, and they all go out and buy a bunch of books and they read. It's cold in Iceland, too, so you, you spend a lot of time around the fire. One of our contributors, Johan, is Icelandic, and he's told us a, a lot about this. But I saw a follow-up story this week that I thought I'd put in. Apparently, and I guess it makes sense, that there's a huge book glut 
every year mm-hmm. afterwards because um, it all comes out. And Iceland doesn't have that many people. He told he he was tracking actually weirdly that when um, Bookwright would have more Facebook likes than there are number the number of people in Iceland. I think we just crossed <laughs> that recently, like three hundred thirty thousand somewhere in that. So you know you can only publish so many titles at so many copies and have so I mean. People can only read. You can only so read much, so much, even, even for in the long, right, cold winter. Even for the, the the long dark of Iceland, so they have this problem. That a lot of return stuff gets put in storage. A lot of them actually end up getting destroyed, oh, and no. so it sounds like there's a bit of like stock taking going on in the book world in Iceland. It's like, should we really do this quite to this extent? Maybe the flood is too big of a flood. Too big and of a needs flood. to be like a not quite a trickle. Yeah. What's between a trickle and a flood? Just uh, a I think it's just a regular old stream. Um, I think a it's brook. kind of like brook. the kind of the book. Yeah, the book trickle. Um, <laughs> I don't think that works. No. Anyway, I think it's kind of like I think it's kind of like they do. They treat their book industry kind of like we treat Thanksgiving dinner. Mm. But you have all this food and you get really stuff, but you still don't eat it all. You know, and but some just of having gets, it all makes you feel it's good. It's fun. Like the, the the feeling of abundance is fun, and it's a thing. Um, like maybe this isn't the best thing because people get overlooked. Of course, books undersell. Right. Um, anyway, so I thought that I thought that was. Or maybe they'll spread out their books across the year yeah. rather than doing the. I'm the sure flood. there's some other holiday that, that there could be a little torrential downpour, not a flood necessarily, but you know, a Donnybrook, a, a gully washer. Um, boy, <laughs> the it, book gully washer. Yeah, my my uh, my farm upbringing, my Kansas upbringing is coming out. It's summer. We're thinking yeah, about those thinking Midwest thunderstorms. So that's I thought that was an interesting. Uh, that is interesting. Uh, little follow up there. I guess it isn't really a follow-up, but, you know, we've talked about – we talked about Amazon, certainly enough. We talked about Kickstarter a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people know necessarily that until – well, right now, well, this last week. Very recently. Kickstarter has been using Amazon's payment system to process the credit card payments that, that go through Amazon. So Amazon takes – it's 3 or 4%. We've run a couple of our own Kickstarter, so mm-hmm. we, we're intimately knowledgeable of this. And it's caused, it's caused some people some uh, distress because, you know, some people don't like Amazon writ large. Some people don't like some of their particular processes. Um, some don't like coupling their supporting of independent small projects to right. the, the everything store. Um, and I don't know if Kickstarter heard that or them, or they themselves had sort of, you know, philosophical objections to Amazon. But at any rate, they finally dropped Amazon. They've gone to Stripe which is, that's what Stripe does. They're basically an yeah, online Stripe payment is, yeah, processing online company. Online and mobile payment processing. And for context, I guess, it's it's useful for listeners if you haven't followed this kind of stuff to know that it wasn't just like Kickstarter called up Amazon and asked if they could run their purchases right. through Amazon. Like Amazon Payments is a product that Amazon makes for businesses and in the same way that they have Amazon, the Amazon content uh, web services where a lot of websites, including some websites that are independent book and Amazon projects. Oh, they probably do don't their, even know they run on AWS. They, yeah, yeah, they run their hosting through uh, through Amazon. So that was a Kickstarter thing, but it's not unusual for businesses to use Amazon payments. Um, one of the one of the things that we had seen over the last few years was a bunch like indie bookstores uh, doing yes. special projects, and they were always using Indiegogo because they didn't want any of their money to go to Amazon or any of their supporters' money to go to Amazon. So it'll be interesting to me to see if those big indie bookstore projects that continue to bubble up will move over to Kickstarter because I think you do get you know higher engagement. I don't know what the difference is, but the last time I went looking for numbers, like you get some higher engagement and better exposure 
easier with Kickstarter. Just more people have Kickstarter accounts. It's more likely. Well, it's like uh, become a um, verb, right? Like you're going to kickstart this project. Like, you know, it's like Xerox. Yeah, nobody's like, I'm going to go Indiegogo this thing. Um, Indiegogo does well also. But, you know, if you can use the most visible platform, you know, use the most visible platform. I mean, if I had a choice between the two things, that's the way I would Yeah, and we did. We had the choice and that's where we've been. That's where we have done our things. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, speaking of Kickstarters, well, I was going to back up just one real quick here. I mean, the other thing that it is super easy to use Amazon payments because they have so many mm. accounts and credit card information. So if you were trying to support a Kickstarter account, you could just go, you know, enter in your, uh, uh, Amazon account and, uh, you know, you'd be ready to go. You don't have to enter in your credit card information again or anything right. else like that. So there was some utility for it. And especially when Kickstarter was small, it was like a, a ready-made off the shelf product, mm-hmm. um, there, but now that they're big and they can do some of their own web dev and. I wonder if they just got better terms from Stripe. I'd be surprised if it was a philosophical thing. No, no, I don't know. You know, it's hard to say. Kickstarter, they're interesting. It's an interesting company. Yeah. Uh, All right. Tell me, speaking of Kickstarters. (laughs) This is huge. So we've been following a bunch of different publication Kickstarters that have happened in the last few months. But McSweeney's um, recently went nonprofit. And now they're running a Kickstarter for $150,000 basically to be able to make this transition from being a for-profit, a for-profit independent publisher to being nonprofit and to being able to continue producing the Believer magazine and some of the books that they do and Timothy McSweeney's Internet Tendency, which is their website where they also published, you know, great essays and humor pieces by popular writers and writers who will someday be popular. Um, they they do really great, mm-hmm. interesting books, funny projects. It's a sort of a staple of what I think of as like the older yes. literary internet. Um, if we're like, if we're internet Gen Xers, then, <laughs> then this is whoever came before us. So it rolled out earlier this week and I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. $150,000 is a lot to ask. They have Boom. 28 days left and they're already at $74,848 yeah. as I'm looking it. at it with almost a thousand backers. They're going to blow this They've got away. some crazy perks too. Have mm-hmm. you seen some of these, like an email from Wes Anderson? Like, yeah. there's like, I mean, it's, you know, it's going to, it's a spendy, it's, but they've got a lot of interesting it, stuff and support. McSweeney's has been around for so long that I think so many writers are connected to it. Yeah. And then so many readers have become connected to it through those writers that just the, like the potential bubble of people talking about this thing because they want McSweeney's to continue to exist is huge. Mm-hmm. Really yeah, interesting. You can get a, um, you can get a, a copy of the onions book with handwritten insults from the onion staff. That's a hundred bucks. Uh, David <laughs> Cross great. for 200 bucks. will take a book off his shelf at random and sign it and send it to you. I mean, it's fun. Like, you know, it's not surprising that McSweeney's has creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you get a stuff. personalized book recommendation from Leslie Jameson, who uh, wrote The Empathy Exams, or from good. Heidi Julevitz. Uh, let's see what yeah. else. Let's see. Deluxe uh, editions. I love The Onion Staff insults you. That's like, these guys did a great job coming up with their perks. Sometimes publishing Kickstarters, and I guess Kickstarters in general, but I just look at the publishing ones. Uh, have really terrible perks. Yep. And these are awesome. For $750, you can get a week of emails from Nick Hornby. Uh, that's pretty <laughs> fun. Pretty funny. Oh, there's a David Cross experience. Oh, oh no, that's it's the same thing. The same Sorry, thing, they're just yeah. calling it. Um, so anyway, that that's interesting. If you're into McSweeney's and you want to take a look at the perks and support them, 
uh, now would be the time to do it. Good luck to them making that transition for from yeah. profit for from for profit to not for profit. That's not easy. I better talk to you about Scrib. Mm-hmm. I teased it before. Yes. That's what we call that's what we call a hook. Is when I sort of drop it. <laughs> is before. that what that was? Yeah. It's like you know I wouldn't mind for my birthday. You know that's how you do that like two or three months before. Um, you know, this is subtle stuff. This is, uh, this is, uh, subtlety elaborate. is really where both of us shine. Yeah. Subtlety, spy craft, uh, well, subterfuge. Um, I'm just saying words now. Script Skunk is, works. Script, script is the subscription, subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to a library of more than half a million ebooks and audiobooks. Go to scribd.com slash bookwrite to get started with the free months. Scribd has some of the biggest publishers around and the biggest publishers around, like say Random House Audiobooks. One thing that's especially good right now, they've got a bunch of new Random House audiobooks, but also HMH, McSweeney's. McSweeney's mm-hmm. titles are in there. Um, yep. You can get as, as ebooks, Counterpoint, Tin House, th- and also comics. We've talked about this a lot. You can check out a bunch of interesting comics. So there's Daredevil, Lumberjanes, there's some Captain America, Avengers. A lot of interesting stuff going on there. You can get the full f- run of Frank Miller's Daredevil, which was the transformative Daredevil um, run that sort of made him a character that people even uh, care about at all. Um, so scribd.com slash bookriot. Go there, get started, get a free month, go through slash bookriot on their page of unlimited reading and listening. And then after that, it's uh, 9 bucks a month, eight ninety nine. So thanks so much for Scribd sponsoring the show. Okay, how about... How about Mark Twain? Mark Twain. Mark Twain, Mark Twain. yeah. Oh, we, did we skip that? Is it we up? did. It's up, it's we, up. Okay, tell me it. about Mark Twain. So some scholars at Berkeley this week uncovered uh, stories that Mark Twain wrote that were never published that are more than 150 years old. Mm. Uh, he wrote letters and stories at the San Francisco Chronicle when it was called the San Francisco Dramatic Chronicle, I guess a long time ago. And his job included writing a 2000 word dispatch and sending it off by stagecoach for publication. Whoa, crazy. Just, let that wash over you. <laughs> um, so Bob Hurst is a is the editor of UC Berkeley's Mark Twain Project. And in the process of doing research for this Mark Twain Project, they unearthed some of these articles that Twain wrote by, com- by combing through Western newspaper archives and scrapbooks. So I was wrong a few minutes ago. Um, some of these things were published previously, but were basically just lost because the archives of these newspapers had, you know, not been surfaced. So you can soon access, I guess, stuff by Mark Twain that people haven't seen before. Mm, That's really... That he sent off by stagecoach. How much more of this stuff are we going to find in people's attics and basements and like... Are, are there just like lost novels out there and stories from everyone? Like or, we've got to reach a point where there's just no more, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it makes you wonder like, so what What was the trajectory here? Like Mark Twain is a 29-year-old guy writing for newspapers in San Francisco. And then a couple decades later, Mark Twain becomes famous for being Mark Twain. And in those couple of decades, the, it was just like forgotten that he had written those those things. Because like now, uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't really know, man. Like, it's interesting. I mean, I guess when you're moving things around by stagecoach, you know, mm. we're not. It's not the kind of archival work, right, and right. Uh, there's a propensity for things to get lost there for sure. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Are these available? Does it say when we're going to be able to take a look? It at doesn't these? say. It does not say when. But their work at this Mark Twain project is a big archival mm. thing and so i don't know if it'll be the anybody can go or if you'll have to like go to the berkeley library and look at the mark twain archives or what um but 
interesting. That's really It's the kind of thing, like, it feels like it couldn't happen to contemporary writers because now if, like, if 10 years from now you write a breakout novel, the first thing that people covering it are going to do is Google you and yeah. look for everything that you've written. That and it'll thing turn you wrote up. for Skyways about the best burgers in right. Cleveland. <laughs> right. That's your legacy, man. Mm-hmm. We better write those donut pieces. Well, yeah, I, I know. Think of, think of what will happen if our donut thoughts are lost <laughs> for all time. Um, okay. So, anyway, so that's, that's, it. that's good. That's world. really good. Um, let's see. On the bundling front, Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a there's a message in a bottle sent to us out here on Bundling Island, um, and it comes that Macmillan and Tor uh, have signed a deal with Bitlet, which we talked about before, um, which is a service that lets you basically take a picture of I think is it the title page or the the permissions yeah, page? It's the title page. You put your signature on the title page of a book. Yeah, and, and you, you snap it. It's an app. Mm-hmm. You snap a picture. And then they'll send you an ebook that's either free or way reduced, like a couple of bucks. Right. Um, and Tor Macmillan, Tor has been really, that's the sci-fi imprint of Macmillan. They've been good about getting away from DRM and they're often uh, game to try things like this. So I'm not surprised at all. Probably right. you aren't either nope. that Tor is onto this. But if you do read Tor or Macmillan titles um, and interested in trying some, I, this is sort of ad hoc bundling, right? It doesn't, yeah. it, it's a, a, a workaround to a more right. um, so, yeah, integrated you've bundling pick. A- have the hard copy of these books, but if you want an ebook edition of them, which like I'm looking at the list here and one of them is Kashiel's Dart by Jacqueline Carey, which is like a huge book, mm-hmm. really long. So maybe you want to reread that this summer and you yeah. don't want to have to carry it around. You can do it through BitLit and get a free or discounted uh, ebook version. Uh, or it's, maybe it maybe if you have hard books, you know, maybe you're doing some shelf culling and you don't really need mm-hmm. to keep the hardback around, but you would yeah. like to have access to it. So it seems especially good for sci-fi because so many sci-fi and fantasy books are, you know, big epic stories mm-hmm. that being able to get them digitally and not have to carry around those giant books if yeah. you don't feel like doing it is cool. And, you know, good job, Tor. Yeah, good Trying job, something Tor. Else. Good job, Tor, for sure. Uh, what else we got left in here? Uh, We've got... We let's keep let's things. keep this library one for next week. That's a, that's a bigger fish we want to fry. Oh, you want to talk about Harlequin? Yeah, let's talk about Harlequin. I think, um, so as we talked about earlier on the show, Harlequin um, uh, was bought by HarperCollins last year. I want to say it's in the fall, summer. I don't know how long has it been. Was it, <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember if it was I can't 2013 remember. or it's, 2014. And it's not listed in this story. Um, but total revenue at HarperCollins rose for the third quarter um, ending, that ended March 31st, 2015, compared to 2014, which is a big jump. Mm-hmm. But it's it's if you take out Harlequin's oh it was twenty fourteen purchase of Harlequin if you take out their total sales were down fifteen percent interesting so like basically a huge like twenty percent uh, of swing mm-hmm. attributed to Harlequin there um, smart purchase smart I mean Collins. assuming that you know you know that that it lasts over time um, sales in the quarter hit four hundred two million dollars was seventy five million coming from Harlequin. And I think they bought them for like $380 million or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I'm a little surprised Harlequin's revenue was down so much in the quarter. Other publishers have, have been flat to moderately up. And we talked, I think, a couple shows ago uh, about how book sales have been up so far. So I don't know. I, I'm not sure about that. Well, it notes here that HarperCollins was the publisher of Divergent. And now that oh. the Divergent series is slowing down comparison bias yeah, yeah that's so they were they were up and now they're dropping because it's kind of the harper collins version of the post 50 shades of gray thing yeah okay interesting but 
the that's right the the to ease in the f- mm-hmm. forward going quarters because everything's not so right. uh, so tied there okay let's do let's do our last sponsor and tell me some new books it's audible audible.com it is the leading provider of audiobooks what are we up to now 180,000 180, 180, titles um, that you can get through audible.com in you know every genre that is you know you could reasonably expect uh, a anyone to carry um, and here's the thing. Go to audibletrial.bookriot. Uh, excuse me, audibletrial.com slash bookriot. I'm re- misreading my URL. And uh, you can get a free 30-day f- trial, which includes a audiobook of your choice. Um, here, here's the thing. We, we, want, we want you to try audiobooks for a lot of reasons. And one is that it lets you get more book time into your life. I mean, that's the thing I think that people sometimes that, especially if they've got sort of a, a format, you know, resistance, they're mm-hmm. like, I don't like audiobooks. Well, I can understand that. I kind of felt the same way at the same time, but don't think of it necessarily as replacing the reading you're already doing. It's more reading. Think of it as more reading. Think of all those times where you're doing something where you could be listening to something, where you're doing something else. You're, you know, you're at the grocery store, you're at the DMV, you're at the post office, you're having your, uh, you're having your, uh, your uh, nails done, you're getting your hair done. That's, it's, that's probably bad form to put in your headphones for those kinds of things. I don't go to do my nails or hair because I don't have any hair and I don't care about the, the former, but probably that's bad form. But you get what I'm saying here is that there's a lot of time in your life where you can be listening to words in your ear holes and having more time to get the books under your belt that you want to experience. So try audiobooks.com. Oh, no, no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Audibletrial.com slash book riot. And I've got to say, I've had, I don't know if I'm going to have a book this year top my listening experience to Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee. Oh, what a book, And man. I, I was talking to, on Twitter, I was like, do I want to do this? I know it's going to be interesting. It's a 21-hour audio book. The his, it's called The Biography of Cancer, and he talks about, it's mostly 20th century, though he gets some prehistories like, of trying to treat cancers. And man, is it fascinating. Like, it is incredible. I remember, I read it when it first came out. It came out in 2010, so it's been a few years. So it's years. good on audio. Oh, it's great on audio. And the, the narrator was the same guy that narrated Marvel, The Untold Story, which was one of the first long audiobooks I did. Mm. And it took me a while to place it. Um, but anyway, really good on audio. Um, there's a, in addition to being a good history, he's a good storyteller. He's also clearly a book fan. There's a lot of epigraphs and references to, mm-hmm. to literature. Um, Susan, Tong, Susan Sontag's illness as metaphor comes up quite a bit. But man, it's, 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 it's I, would you call, I wouldn't really call this a micro history, but I guess you no, maybe could. I think it's like the very best kind of narrative nonfiction. Yeah. Not quite. Well, it's not really it's narrative because it's not like Unbroken by Hillenbrand or something yeah, like that. And, but it's also not quite. It's not like investigative, right. but it's super well It's researched, researched. yeah. It's kind of a mix of those two, but he really does. Like he's telling the story of cancer yep. and of how cancer came to be and what kinds of cancers there are and how we treat them and how we've how our scientific understanding of treating cancer has evolved, but also sort of like the cultural place of cancer and he's a physician. And so there's also this great, well, the thing that I remember really walking away from the book was, was it's not cold science. No. There's so much warmth and empathy um, that he has for the, not just the people who suffer from cancer, but the people who spend their lives working to treat and help cure it. It's really, man, it's so remarkable. So if you like nonfiction at all, I can't recommend it highly enough. And the other thing is like, like one in three of us are going to get cancer. Mm-hmm. Or and and a way higher percentage of that is going to know someone 
who gets cancer. Um, I know that's true for both of us. So mm-hmm. anyways, I think in addition, it's very informative about like the history of the medicine and what we do and don't know. And anyway, uh, just it's a just, remarkable, yeah. remarkable book. So tell You're thinking you don't want to read a 600 page book about cancer, you but do, you do. You do. Tell me about some new books. Thanks so much to All Audible right. for sponsoring the show, audibletrial.com slash book riot. We got new books. And before I do new books, I have to tell you about a new new books thing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Is so it going to be out by the time? It's going okay. to be out right after right this. Right after this. Okay. Uh, so partially based on the popularity of this new books segment and how much the listeners have told us over the years that they like hearing about new releases and partially based on the incredible popularity of the new books newsletter that Liberty Hardy writes for Book Riot every Tuesday, Liberty and I are going to host a weekly show called All the Books. That's going to be a half hour podcast starting next week um, where we'll talk about as many new releases as we can pack into a half hour. Mm-hmm. All kinds of books. I'm very excited about this. Me too. Uh, Liberty reads more than anyone I have ever met and incredibly diversely um, in terms of genre and all of the other definitions of diversity. So there really is going to be something for everyone. The first show is in the can and we're going to release it next week. And you'll probably hear a little teaser episode drop into this feed um, somewhat somewhere between those two. But keep an eye out. You can search um, eventually by the 12th of May, you'll be able to search for all the books on iTunes to subscribe. And we'll keep doing these short new book segments on this show. But if you want to hear about new releases more in depth every week, you can search for that. Liberty is awesome. Uh, I'm so excited to have an excuse to talk to her for a half hour every week and learn about all the things she's reading. Um, So new books. The first is The World Between Two Covers by Anne Morgan. This is like one of the most interesting titles that I've seen this year. Um, She undertook this project because she was sitting around one day looking at her bookshelves and realized that in 20-ish years of being an avid reader, most of the books that she was reading were by English and North American writers, and most of them were white. She had barely touched a work by a foreign language author in years. And so she says, the awful truth dawned. I was a literary xenophobe. So what she decided to do was to read a book translated into English from each of the world's 195 UN-recognized countries, plus Taiwan, and I think there's one other one. So she reads classics and folk tales, contemporary favorites, big commercial successes, literary novels, short stories, memoirs, like something from just about all the genres that you can think of. One book from every country in the world, and this is about the books that she read and the experience of spending a year doing that. I think it's just so cool. That sounds great. Um, If you're doing the Read Harder Challenge this year for Book Riot and you're looking for all kinds of diverse things to read, you could just probably pick up The World Between Two Covers and go through her recommendations for that. Mm. Uh, The other new release that I know a bunch of us at Book Riot are excited about this week is Re-Jane by Patricia Park. Uh, This is a retelling of Jane Eyre set in modern day Queens. And Jane is half Korean and half American. Uh, She's an orphan. She lives in Flushing, Queens, and she's been trying to escape it her whole life. Uh, She works and feels very unappreciated in her strict uncle's grocery store. And she's desperate to get out and to have a new life. So she becomes the au pair for two Brooklyn English professors who have an adopted Chinese daughter. Mm. And, you know, she's inducted into that 
world, you know, like organic food co-ops and 19th century novels and uh, presumably a bunch of young men in their early 20s writing novels and toiling over them, sadly. Mm -hmm. Uh, she's also, Jane is the recipient of, um, this, the woman that she works for gives her these feminist lectures <laughs> and, um, when there's a death in their family that interrupts the the family, uh, Jane's family, she sort of has this blossoming, blossoming love affair and she flies off to Seoul, uh, Korea, and she leaves New York behind and she's struggling to reconnect with her family and to learn the ways of modern day Korea, but also to have this identity uh, that she's developing. Amanda really, really loved this. Um, I haven't read it yet. By all accounts, it's awesome. I have, I, I mean, what could be cooler than a retelling mm. of Jane Eyre in contemporary New York with a diverse heroine? Um, it sounds awesome. Wow. So those are the new books this week, and that's our show. That's our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, as always, um, we're we're thinking to summer. We've got new big books coming out the next couple Lots of months of stuff, I was looking yeah. at. Um, as always, you can find show notes at uh, com slash podcast. you got feedback for us. You can email us at podcast.com slash bookwrite. Find us on Twitter. I'm at the Jeff O'Neill, O-N-E-A-L. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. And we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. 